This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here. And if you're coming back to the show, welcome back. And if you are new, what we do here is deconstruct ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And what does all that mean? Because it might sound like gobbledygook. It means not mechanistically going through each day on autopilot, but going about it with awareness, purpose, meaning, and maybe even some new tactics for, let me just say, ass kickery. Yeah, ass kickery. And to that point, on today's show, Dr. Dan Dworkis, MD, PhD, author of The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And if you have a job where you perform under pressure, I would say that Dan's book is worth checking out. And when I was reading it, I couldn't help but think, man, I wish I had this when I was in my emergency medicine training because there is actually no specific training on how to perform better. There was a lot of training on how to do these techniques better or learn your knowledge better, but not on performance specifically. You know, now there is, now there's training on this and attention to it to some degree, but I'll say the book is great. And if after hearing Dan, you want to hear more of him, he's also host of the Emergency Mind podcast that focuses on helping individuals and teams perform better under pressure. Dan is a clinical professor of emergency medicine at USC's Keck School of Medicine. And as you will see, he is a deep thinker when it comes to all of this. So let's get to it. So in COVID, you've been surfing live in mm. LA and spearfishing. Was spearfishing something you did before this all went down? Or is this kind of your your new avenue of bliss? I guess not blissful for the fish, but blissful for you. Yeah, it sort of depends on your vantage point for that for sure. <laughs> but you know, so so I'd been once before, so a, a really close friend I'm incredibly lucky to have some very deep uh friendships out here and some people that are fascinating and incredibly impactful in their own ways and really sort of push me to be better as a, as a person. Um, so one of my close friends out here named John runs this thing called cast and spear and it's cast and He's somebody who's, who's growing, you know, grew up in the ocean and grew up fishing and it's such an important part of his life. And he's been sharing that with all of us. So he, um, once before COVID took us all out spear fishing and, uh, which is, is actually a, you know, really put a lot of this like performance under pressure stuff to the test. Cause I'd never been before. I, you know, snorkeled a couple of times and we're out on this tiny little boat in Baja, uh, in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been spearfishing, but the first time, the first time you go, you know, so you have to wear a weighted belt in order to, to counteract the buoyancy of your wetsuit. So, we're sitting in this boat and we're out in the middle of nowhere and all the other people are really accomplished spearfishers and they're all jumping off and diving in. And I'm sitting here with these weights and I go, John, how do you know how much weight to put on your belt? And he goes, oh, you know, you try it out. You put weight on your belt and if you sink, then it's too much weight. And I, I sort of laugh because I assume he's kidding, but in fact, he, he is not kidding. And so, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, you put this weight on and you just dive out into the ocean and sort of see what happens. And, you know, so I splash down and it's totally beautiful everywhere around me. And I'm, you know, circling around for a second. I pop back up about to be like, Hey, I, I, the weight's good. And the, the boat's just gone. And so you're floating in the middle of the ocean, completely untethered to anything, looking around for like your other six people that were with you. And it got, you know, really real, really quickly. 
And it goes straight from like, hey, here's this theory about how you spearfish to like, you are now alone in the ocean wearing a weighted belt. Go. And of course, like the boat circled back and like, you know, only good things happened and it was a wonderful experience. But it really, uh, you know, it was a wonderful time to sort of like put into practice a lot of what I, I spend my time thinking about, which is performance under pressure and thinking when you're stressed and sort of dealing with uncertainty. And since COVID has started, we've been spending a lot more time doing that only only now up in Malibu, just outside of LA, um, as opposed to in the middle of the ocean in Baja. What was that movie where there were the two scuba divers and the boat left them and the, uh, probably maybe it was in Baja and and then they just kind of had to survive and they didn't survive because they just got eaten Much sadder sharks. ending than my story of coming home successfully and eating some fish. How did you regroup your mind then? I think anytime you're put in a situation where you're really sort of uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable and where you're, you're you know, sort of butting up against something that could actually be dangerous or serious, um, you have to sort of take stock of what you're doing and realize like where you are, what you have available and, and what's real and what isn't. Because it's really tempting that first time that like a wave goes over your head and fills the snorkel to be like, oh man, I am absolutely going to die. And you, you, like, you're probably not going to die. And if you are going to die, then like, okay, cool, you're going to die. And like, at least you're in an ocean and that's wonderful. But like, if you're not, <laughs> then then you sort of have to figure out what to do next. Honestly, the answer is, the answer is like psychological countermeasures right? So how do you deploy countermeasures? And they're the same countermeasures that you train for any sort of stressful situation that you're doing, right? So for me, the same countermeasures that I grew up doing in martial arts, when you're stressed and, and under attack and somebody's about to get a chokehold on you, is exactly the same countermeasures you d- deploy when you're in the ocean and a wave is coming over you, which is, you know, recognize what you have available, like take a second to, you can't really breathe necessarily, but if you can breathe, right. But to feel your heartbeat, recognize you've been in tense situations before and you've got out of them. And then remember that like, you know, you're probably going to get out of this and not die and sort of take that first movement towards something. Take your first movement away from the kind of that panic. Yeah. Just move something, move something, right? Like if you think about friction, like the coefficient of static friction is always higher than the coefficient of dynamic friction. Once you start moving, you can pivot and adjust and do everything better, but you can't stay still. If you stay still, you freeze and you crumble. In an emergency department, when I'm doing this, when I'm trying to overcome that sort of initial like uh, coefficient of static friction or that huge weight, I actually take my own pulse. And I do that because it's some medical thing that I can do every time. And it reminds me of, it reminds me of two things. It reminds me of how far I've come since the first time I learned how to take a pulse. And also it reminds me all the other times that I've sort of got out of bad situations and that, Hey, I've got these heartbeats right now to try to figure out what to do with it. In that case, it was a little bit easier because if you literally freeze, then you, you sink. So you get to sort of like, like the action of actually like kicking your feet with your fins and propelling yourself upward is a pretty good metaphor for sort of like taking that first step forward. In jujitsu, sometimes, honestly, it's just to like sink in, block the arm and take a breath and just realize you still have that breath right there. It's kind of that, all these different resets that we learn, right? Like, you know, okay, so you're kind of freaking out as you're about to intubate this 500 pound guy. All right. So do a little bit of triangular or square breathing to come back, to level down, to center. I hate to use the word hack. That's a sound so... Sure. cliche. And, and actually, I think it belittles the process when you say like a brain hack. But yeah, I guess it's coming back to center, really. And part of coming back to center is moving away from that spot. It's engaging in action rather than staying static. 
Yeah, it's recognizing that that your brain is wired a certain way, that your physiology is wired a certain way, and that your consciousness is going to support you in this. But it's not going to do it by accident, and it's not going to do it by itself. You know, the way it's programmed a lot of times is to freeze and to shut down. And you have other options. You have other tools in your toolkit. There's this amazing book, The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal, who's a um, Stanford researcher who talks about the different ways that our physiology can respond to stress. And And it's way beyond what we normally consider in terms of fight or flight. And there's a bunch of different options we have available. We just have to be able to choose them. So, so yeah, it's a hack in the sense that like all I'm doing is touching my wrist with one other hand and feeling my pulse. But really what I'm doing is leveraging all of my training and deciding to activate a different part of my physiology. I spearfished once. I didn't know I was going to spearfish. I was in Belize with my mm-hmm. daughter and we were snorkeling and we were with guides in this reef. And I think it was lionfish that was an invasive species, whatever the invasive species was, like they were spearing them and you're mm. supposed to spear them if you see them. You know, as, as you're describing, you're free diving. And so you have to hold your breath. You have to be calm. Mm. And then the guy said, oh, why don't you do some now? And you're essentially... I'm not sure what you were doing, but we were using the sling that mm-hmm. it's like a rubber band, right? And you kind of pull the tension on, and then you just let it go. It wasn't the gun. And right. That's what I use. Yeah. And so you, you have to get up next to the fish. And so I'm thinking, oh, th- this could not possibly be easier <laughs> You're right there. And so I remember going down that first time and he says, okay, it's, it's in this little nook. It's in this little cranny. We're just going to go down. We're going to settle. And we didn't have weights. We just had on wetsuit tops, so you kind of have been fighting against your buoyancy a little bit. And it was just, I don't know, like 10 or 12 feet deep, so it wasn't anything crazy. But you're still holding your breath. I'm right next to this fish, literally inches, and it, I shot the thing, and it hit a rock, and I missed the fish, and it swam away. I was thinking, God, just the being underwater in that situation, holding your breath, and having to hold that spear, that sling. I mean, it's almost... I don't know. I mean, it's like this prehistoric weapon, if they, I guess, if they had elastic and, and to spear this fish, it was so hard. It took me several times to do it from an inch away from this lionfish. And the first time I did it, I was shocked because I started realizing just how freaking hard it was. You know, you're touching on so much stuff in there about like things that seem they're easy until you really get into it, which is describes a billion different things. I, I want to get into some of the stuff you have in your book. And this is more of a general concept. I want to get into some of the specific things that you talk about. But as I was reading it, I was thinking about the different situations. I mean, it's, uh, obviously, our spearfishing conversation was not the intended topic, what we we're going to talk about today. But it kind of leads into these different types of pressure and these different types of stress. So specifically in emergency medicine, since that's what you and I know so well for particularly pressure-filled situations, there's these different types of pressure. And I'm wondering if the same skills or the same tactics to mitigate that and to perform well under that pressure apply. And what I mean by that is two separate situations. One is the critical patient where they are going to die if you don't act. And seconds and minutes really count. And you need to be methodical, you need to be skilled, and you need to be A, B, C, let's get this done. You need to be, have good cognitive skills, and you need to have very good manual skills. Like somebody who's had a gunshot wound to the face would be a perfect example, and they're, choke, they're choking on their blood, and you got a coat open their neck, and it's like, okay, this needs to happen right now. Pressure. You feel it. You feel it every time. And then there's this other pressure. So, 
you've, you know, you've got all these other patients in the emergency department, and then you've got this one where you can't figure out what's going on with them. And there's five other people waiting for that bed. And this person isn't like really sick, but you can't, you know, are they good enough to go home? Are they, are they bad enough to be admitted? It's like, I don't know what to do. And you kind of keep working them up. And then you've got the pressure from the charge nurse to get them out of there and make a decision. And you just like, can't really figure out what that decision is and you still feel pressure and you're still in that environment and i'm wondering if the approach to managing the mental formations that happens under these types of pressure are different or is it the exact same thing that you fall back on it's a good question and it's one that i've been sort of kicking around for or a version of that that i've been kicking around for a while and so so taking one step back from that like like I believe that applying knowledge under pressure is a skill and it's a skill and it's separate from the knowledge that you have and it's separate from anything else that you're doing. Like, like whatever you have the ability to do, accessing that and applying it skillfully under significant pressure is its own, its own skill that we can get better at. Um, and if more than anything else, that's sort of the underlying hypothesis that, that the book is about, which is all these different mental models for sort of addressing that and, and accessing that knowledge. Now, I think that different situations call for different types of responses, right? The very straightforward, let's take a small example and we'll loop back to this. So if you think about how we communicate, how we communicate between the team members, right? What's appropriate communication in a code environment, really closed loop, straightforward, hierarchical, action-oriented, very straightforward techniques is wonderful in a code and totally terrible when you and I are having a conversation about like how our life is going, right? Like we need different tools in different circumstances. Yeah, as you say that, I think about the, um, what is it like the, the, uh, three-way or three-level communication where you, you, you give the, give the call, you, they give, they mm-hmm. give the answer, they give the, what that they got the answer back. So right. Give one milligram epinephrine, copy that one milligram of epinephrine given. You don't do that when you're talking about free diving in Baja, California. Correct. And, and you shouldn't. It's not the right tool for the right situation, right? A hammer is not a chisel. You need them in different circumstances. Um, and actually, there's this great group, the Mission Critical Teams Institute, that studies teams. The, the way they describe a mission critical team is people that come together uh, ad hoc to solve a particular problem in 300 seconds or less. That's their, that's their threshold for it. Super interesting, folks. One of the things they studied is the way that teams communicate during uh, cardiac surgeries for children's for children. And what they found is if you divide, it's about a six hour long surgery. And essentially the first two hours are relatively routine getting set up. The second two hours are the actual critical phase of the component. And the last two hours are sort of the decompression phase and resolution. And if you map their communication over those six hours, it looks wildly different. The first and third phases are straightforward. They're talking about their kids. They're talking about life. They're talking about whatever. And then in those middle two hours, they really snap focus into this higher higher gear. So that's sort of what I think about it is also is that there's these two gears, right? There's like the normal gear, and then there's the real emergency gear, the afterburners, the whatever it is you want to call it, that kicks in when you're really in that mission critical moment, those 300 seconds of life or death that we're sort of wrestling with. So in one hand, my answer to your question is no, they're really very different. Right, what it takes to succeed in those 300 seconds is very different than what it takes to succeed in the rest of all your patients. At the same time, they're not entirely separate because they're all linked together. Right, at a basic level, we're talking about 
how do we make decisions and how do we make decisions under pressure? And some of that has to go back to how our brain is wired, right? System one versus system two thinking, recognition, prime decision making, all of these factors that come into play. So we need to understand how our brain and our body works under pressure to understand how we function both in the broader pressure and in the tighter pressure, the really tip of the spear. You just mentioned system one and system two thinking. So system one, that's like your immediate your kind of your gut feeling. And I may be wrong with some of the details in this, but just my understanding system two, your cerebral analytical thinking. And I wonder if there's one that gets too much respect and maybe we need to pay deliberate attention to the other one. That's a really big and very useful question. And we actually put out a, a deep conversation, Dan McCollum and I, about this recently about training system one versus system two thinking. Okay, when I first read Kahneman's book about system one, system two thinking, um, which describes it basically like what you're saying, like, you, like information does not flow easily through all parts of your brain the same way. There's anisotropy in the system. Some things are easier for you to think than others, and they're easier wait, wait, for you what, to think. Th- what, what was that word? Anisotropy, right? So it, it basically like the direction that you're going matters in terms of what it looks like to you and in terms of the friction of it. Okay. Did not anticipate having a new word with so many syllables today. And Dude, it's great, right? It's good. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> So if you just imagine your, you know, if you just imagine your brain as sort of a connection of pathways, like not all pathways are as easy to travel down for one reason or another, a a more positive version of saying that, or a more um, constructive versus deconstructive way to say that is that we're wired to be really good at some things in some circumstances. So when there's a saber tooth tiger coming at us, we are wired to move quickly in certain directions where we're not as wired to design great pieces of art or to create works of literature. That takes more energy and different types of energy. And in some sense, that's what we're saying about system one and system two. System one is automatic processing, easy flow pathways, and sort of deep algorithms. System two is more creative and analytic and and really exhaustive in the way that it thinks. Okay, but it gets more complicated than that, right? So there's also other entire ways of thinking about things, people that disagree entirely with the system one, system two thinking. So there's this guy, Gary Klein, right? Who writes this book, Sources of Power. And he advances a completely different algorithm, which is the recognition prime decision-making algorithm. And I've got his book right in front of me over here on the desk because I'm still digging through it and trying to understand it. But essentially, he essentially Kahneman talks about and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with me on this, but Kahneman talks about how people that are not experts make decisions about things that are new to them. So if you're going down into spearfishing for the first time and you're not an expert and you're presented with a situation, your brain probably functions the way that Kahneman describes in system one, system two thinking. Klein talks about how experts make decisions in fields where they have expertise. So the the example he always uses is a fire captain approaching a burning building who's able to tell in ways that like make a lot not a lot of sense from the outside exactly where the fire is and exactly how to deploy his staff in order to achieve control of that fire. So they're actually sort of different things and they're related of course but they're different. That's a probably an unnecessarily deep dive into how we think about things. You walk into a room somebody is in cardiac arrest, Mm -hmm. you immediately know what's going on, you know what phases this is in, you know what this person needs to be doing, you know what that person's doing wrong. And within 30 seconds, you could have that, if it's a shambolic catastrophe, you could have that organized in the perfect way because you've Mm -hmm. done it 5,000 times. Right. 
I guess that would be expertise. And that would almost be, I guess, wouldn't that be system one where you're just, you're not analyzing. It's just, it's sort of a hybrid of the two because your gut knows what it is, but you're also very quickly analyzing what's happening. Right. And I think if you make me, you know, if you put me in front of a patient who is really sick and ask me to perform and you make me pick whether I'm using system one or system two, then I'm probably going to be using system one in that circumstance. And I'm going to be more using system two in other circumstances. But I guess what I'm saying is perhaps that's a false duality, right? Actually, as a, an expert walking into a room where I have expertise, there's probably some other things going on that don't fit neatly into those buckets. What is the deliberate path to becoming that fire captain beyond just doing reps? That is like, I love that question. I absolutely love that question. That's part of what I wake up thinking about right? <laughs> because I think that... I think that if you, tr if I ask myself, how do I become an expert? And yeah. I ask my residents, how can I teach you to become an expert? And I think what you just said is magic, which is that the, the way I'll, the way I'll reframe that is time on target and repetition is necessary, but not sufficient to become a master. And we have to do more than just show up for work in order to actually achieve mastery, right? If I take myself back to my martial arts days and I'm throwing a kick over and over and over again, I'm going to get better at that kick. But unless I focus on the components, break it down, train the individual pieces, put them back together and actively try to get better at it, I'm not going to get better at that kick. So how do we know that's true? How do we know that time on target isn't enough, right? Okay, well, if it was just time on target, then the oldest person in the room who'd seen the most patients is always your best bet. So imagine you had a junior resident in emergency medicine who's trained to think under pressure, who's thought a little bit about what it takes to perform. And you compare them to the oldest, crustiest dermatologist you can possibly find. Which one do you want to run your code? If I code, I want the emergency medicine junior to run my code. Because it's not just time on target. It's not just the number of patients you see. It's what you do with them. How do you really formalize your learning, break them into components, and put them back together again? And I think there are some real models out there about how that works. Right? One really important piece is that we train with an idea of graduated pressure. The reason we do this is because we want to capture information from our failures and never waste that suffering. So, so let's put you back into junior resident mode. What does that mean, grad graduated pressure? Instead of how do we get better in general, let's take a really specific example of a skill, right? So let's take putting a central line in. I want to get to physical yeah. skills in a minute. I want to do cognitive skills because I think they're okay. a lot harder because you can, I mean, you can watch Scott Weingart's micro skills on how yeah. to do a central line and then break it down into, you know, 50 steps and be like, okay, now I really get it. But I think running a major trauma uh -huh. is much harder than putting okay. in a central line. Great. So let's, let's take a skill as an example and a sub-skill that, that emergency physicians need to do all the time, which is running an ATLS algorithm. Perfect. We get into a room. We have a really sick trauma patient. There are multiple stab wounds to the box. They're looking really ill. You're sitting in that moment. Everybody's looking at you. You try to figure out what to do. How do you deploy your knowledge under that situation? And for non-medical listeners, the box is the area around the heart that if there's a stab wound there, it's not going to be good. You do not want to get stabbed there. Correct. It is one of, one of many areas on the human body that you don't want to be stabbed. Box from Amazon Prime is usually something fun. A box from a stab wound. Negative. Never. Which total never. sidebar, there's an amazing article from The Onion from years ago, uh, which talks about it's a fake scientific study um, monitoring the effects of stab wounds on monkeys. And the punchline is anywhere you stab a monkey, it's bad for the monkey. <laughs> I, should, I don't know. I, I feel bad about laughing. On that, but it's, 
it's the onion. It's great. So <laughs> anyway, okay. So you're in this room and you have a patient with all these multiple stab wounds and you're trying to figure out how to deploy your knowledge. The concept of graduated pressure is that you need to master your skill at a friendly, ultra low stakes environment, and then ramp up the pressure over time until you're ready to apply it in real life. Now, the counterfactual to that is essentially jump in the deep end. So I tell you, hey, Rob, airway is important. Breathing is important. Circulation is important. Here's a nearly dead person. Good luck, son. I'm out of here. And then you jump in, right? So in that case, you're just as likely to fail because you don't physically know where the airway equipment is in the room as you are because you have an underlying um, deficiency in your understanding of human physiology. And you fail and the patient dies. And what happens, right? You don't learn anything. You're traumatized. The patient's dead. Your team doesn't get better. And you've wasted the suffering of that moment. That's the opposite of graduated pressure. Graduated pressure allows us to address that, that circumstance in a logical way that, that gets us ready to perform at the top of our level. So in this case, I say, okay, here's how human physiology works. Here's what ATLS is about. Now let's run it in the sim lab. Let's run it really quietly. No extra pressure, no extra anything. You're going to run it with all your friends around. You're going to run it as a team. You're going to get that pathway burnt into your mind. Great. Okay, good. You've mastered it now. Now let's, let's add on some pressure. We're going to play Megadeth in the background as loud as we can and see how you do. <laughs> Lauren Allister, an amazing pediatric emergency medicine physician and, and somebody I've been lucky enough to train under, calls this screaming math class, right? Where instead of learning to do calculus, you learn to do algebra and arithmetic, but you do it while somebody's shrieking at you over and over again. So then you get through some of this pressure. Then you start actually deploying it in real life and seeing how it goes. And what this gets us is not only comfort and confidence and the ability to stretch ourselves, but more than almost anything else, it allows us to not waste the suffering that we see. And I think that's honestly like the biggest thing. If, if I could blink out of existence and have one thing that was left behind me, it's that, it's that, in, that challenge to never waste the suffering that we see. I think that is literally the most mm. important thing that I've ever sort of stumbled across. Because suffering happens, it's an inevitable part of existence. But if we harness it, if we leverage it, and we get better and our team gets better, then, then it has worth, it has value. I've heard you talk about borrowing pressure from yeah. other events to succeed in something that's unrelated. And like, what does that mean to borrow pressure? What happens when we feel pressure? At a physiological level, our sympathetic nervous system is firing, our heart rate goes up, our breathing goes up, we're sweaty, we're tense, maybe we're having, you know, an upset stomach, whatever it is, whatever, however we personally feel pressure, it's a, it's a thing that, that we have to overcome when we're trying to deploy that knowledge. So the idea of borrowing pressure is to leverage other circumstances where you feel those things and train in those circumstances. A really simple example is at the end of a workout, right? So I happen to live at the top of a hill. So when I finish my runs, I run up that hill and I am definitely firing my sympathetic nervous system. My heart's up, I'm sweaty, I'm breathing hard, neighbors that walk by to me, it's a really wonderful time. So in that <laughs> moment, when I have my sympathetic nervous system firing, that's when I run through algorithms in my head. So I mentally intubate patients. I put in central lines. I run through rare procedures like paramortem C-sections, dropping temporary venous pacemakers, things like that. And I do it in a way where I'm able to take advantage of my system being activated. And essentially, it's a, it's a method of training under pressure where you're able to leverage those experiences. That is fascinating. I mean, you, you know, we talk a lot about mental simulation 
and going through that. And, you know, so many people who have been on the show talk about before they get into a shift, they walk through the process of some uncommon procedure, sure. a cri- cutting the neck, opening the chest or a perimortem C-section, something like that. And that is in the calm of your car when you've been chill. By doing that, when you actually have stress, sweat, sympathetic activation, I've never heard of that before. And if only you could actually have mega death coming through your earbuds, I think that might be the coup. Why not do both, right? To, to me, this came sort of logically out of, out of training in jujitsu, right? Which is that how do you learn a skill in jujitsu? Okay, well, your instructor goes, great, we're going to work on an omoplata lock, which is an elbow shoulder lock. Okay, so here's how it works. Now let's drill this slowly, five, six times in a row. Now your partner's going to add a little resistance to you. Now your partner's going to add some more resistance. Now at the end of class, you're doing live rolls where you're really just wrestling each other. And your job is to try to submit your partner using the omoplata lock. Okay, well, you can get it right 99 times in a row in a low pressure circumstance, and that will have sometimes little to no bearing on your ability to actually accomplish that same technique in a high pressure situation. So how do you do it? How do you train for those high pressure situations? Well, one is borrow pressure. One is visualize under pressure. And another is learn transferable tools that work in all sorts of pressure situations. Um, things like what we were talking about earlier for, for, for spear diving or spear fishing, right? Which is how to calm yourself down no matter what the circumstance is. And it's got a lot to do with the whole Yerkes-Dodson law idea, right? This sort of bell-shaped curve, which says essentially, if you plot uh, on an x-axis, you're... So, for the actual Yerkes-Dodson law, um, they're talking about physiological arousal, but you can sort of substitute like mental, like cognitive load as your x-axis. So the farther out the x-axis you get, uh, the more under pressure you are. Or, let me rephrase that. The more under pressure you feel, because it's all about how you feel, not necessarily the actual load that you're carrying. On the y-axis is your performance at a particular task or whatever it is. And it's actually really like a bell-shaped curve, right? So if there's not enough pressure, if there's not enough load on you, then you're bored and you don't do particularly well at a task. If there's excessive pressure on you, then you're frazzled and you don't perform particularly well at the task. And the sweet spot is really somewhere in the middle. So how does this help us, right? Well, one, if we know that this exists, then we can deploy countermeasures during the course of our shift to left shift us on the Yerkes-Dodson curve when we're overwhelmed. The other thing is we can right shift ourselves during training when we're generally speaking too cool and maybe a little bit bored to get us into a a zone that really, um, really simulates how we're actually going to be deploying these skills. I think that how at least physicians are taught most things. I think about how I was taught to do a lumbar puncture and a central line and a chest tube. And it was somebody walking me through it saying, okay, you do blah, 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 blah. And you do blah, and you slip it in here, blah, blah, blah. And I can confidently say the wrong way because it doesn't really teach the incremental steps. I thought about that recently. I'm learning how to do a Turkish getup with a kettlebell, right? And I've watched that for years and it's kind of like, ah, it looks so mysterious. Like, wait a second. It looks like this is doable and it looks like there's a lot of steps. And so watching, I'm watching YouTube videos on people breaking it down and I'm like halfway through. It's like, okay, I just, I want to get into muscle memory, how to do one step, two step, and then watch this video again and go back one step, two step. And then hear people talk about, here's the mistakes that you make in one step, two step, so that 
the habits you develop are the right way to do it rather than the bad habits or the dangerous things, right? Just, you know, you can do dangerous things putting a needle in someone's chest or you can do dangerous things trying to lift a kettlebell above your body. And we were talking before about Scott Weingart's micro skills. I mean, he teaches, you know, putting in a central line, like there's this one thing if, you know, you put the catheter in, it's like, no, there's actually all of these tiny little steps that you can do. The total immersion swimming program is the exact same way. It's like, oh, you don't just flail your arms. Actually, you don't even use your arms when you're starting to learn how to swim. You just, it's actually the position of your body. And so these incremental steps to just actually learn the the movements and well, I'm thinking about receiving a trauma patient. It's like, okay, let's actually just work on the first 30 seconds of this rather than, okay, let's just go through what it looks like in ATLS simulation. It's we're going to just practice the first part where the paramedics come in and give report and the patient gets transferred, where you're going to be and what you're going to do. And so let's just get that down. It's a little bit off the off the topic, but it just makes me think of lear- learning these things and learning them in a particular way. But even taking a step back further, it's like you don't have to eat the whole pie all at once. Absolutely, absolutely. And how do we how do we teach things and set people up for success in learning in a way that they're really ready to absorb that information? And that they conceive of it in the way that we do as experts, right? So the first time I watch somebody run a code, you know, other than being like, what the hell is going on right now? (laughs) I remember thinking, oh my God, there's a billion different things happening. How do you possibly keep that straight? But now when I think about running a code, to me, it breaks down into particular segments, right? So there's the like zero to two minute segment of running a code. And what are my goals for that? And how do I accomplish them? How do I train that skill? Then my two minutes to four minutes, like what can I accomplish in that second that second pass through of ACLS. Then there's like steady state. And what do I accomplish in steady state? And how do I train those goals? And really you break it into pieces and sort of attack each one of them differently. But that requires that differential understanding. And, and that, that is, I think, something that we can teach and share with our, with our other teammates. Take a break for a moment, because I want to let you know that today's episode is in support of IMALS. We're holding off on sponsors for a while and just talking about organizations we support, and IMALS is absolutely one of them. And here's the background of this. People often refer to ALS as this rare disease, which is not really the case. The lifetime risk is around 1 in 300. And because lifespan is so short after diagnosis, the overall incidence in the population at any one time, not that high, but lifetime risk, significant. And since Lou Gehrig was diagnosed 80 years ago, available treatments have been shown to extend life just by three months. I mean, that's 80 years, three months. IMALS supports research legislation to fast-track therapies. In fact, founders Brian Wallach and his wife Sandra just testified before Congress, and they provide critical resources for patients and caregivers which can be so important, especially when someone is first diagnosed and trying to figure out how to navigate all this. I am ALS. They're there. The question is no longer if we'll find a cure for ALS, but when. This is an underfunded disease. It might not seem like it because you got like the ice bucket challenge and all these things in the press, but it is. It's an underfunded disease and every little bit makes a difference. We at Stimulus will match donations to IMALS up to $5,000. We've already gotten many donations. Thank you for that. If you are curious, want to check this out, you can click on the link in the show notes to our stimulus donation page. All right. Now let's get back to our conversation with Dan Dworkis. You have in your book this word that I have never heard before, 
and I love, maybe not love in a way to be in your entire life, but love in these emergency situations. And I don't know if I'm going to say it right, is sang Freud. sang yeah. Translating to cold-blooded. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Why is it a good thing? And then how do you do it? So sang is two French words, sang meaning blood and foi meaning cold. And literally it means cold-blooded, but really what it means is the skill of being calm in stressful situations. So there's this great quote that's uh, supposedly attributed to Napoleon talking about his army. And he goes, panic must be drilled out and sang instilled in order to be successful. And so at a fundamental level, sang is just not being perturbed by what's going on. Right now, now it's not it's not a Pollyanna. It's not saying, "Hey, everything's great." Like, no big deal. I'm being crushed by this giant wave. I picture Clint Eastwood in every spaghetti western. You know, steely eyed, sure. just shaking his head and disdain <laughs> at any situation. Well, it's pretty pretty good example, actually. Yeah, you know. So, so when I think about Sangfu, when I first started thinking about this, I started thinking about it as really purely a mental strength of fortitude, sort of a, you know, like a tower of iron will that's just unassailable by everything happening. And I think that that's actually a pretty limited understanding of it and a pretty brittle one. Because if you make it all about resistance, then eventually you're going to be overcome. The universe has this wonderful way of sort of humbling everything around it. And no matter how strong my will is, eventually it's going to find something that I can't just overpower my way through. So now, when I think about Sangfua and about the ability to maintain calm under pressure, I think about it as a package of skills that we can deploy, right? So there's physiological skills, like how do I control my body's actual physiological response to pressure and fear and stimulus like that? There's mental skills, right, which get back into sort of more of the Buddhist or Stoic philosophy ideas of when I'm pushed by something, right, when I'm scared or or when I'm startled by something, how do I slow myself down and control broaden that pause between stimulus and response, right? In order to, to create that space to act. And then how do I radiate that calm to the room around me and communicate that in a way that's really useful? Sangfua is a skill and it's a trainable skill. And the way to train it is graduated pressure, not to be like a broken record here, right? But what you want to do is think about the mental, physiological, and teamwork, interpersonal components of being calm and stress, and then drill them. Drill them in small circumstances. Drill them when coffee spills on you. Drill them when you're in traffic, which is like an incredible teacher. So you want to take those skills, those physiological, those mental, and those interpersonal communicative skills and figure out what works for you. You got to experiment. You got to find what really works for you in those circumstances. And then you have to deploy them over and over again, iteratively in increasing sets of pressure to sort of test them. So you test them when coffee spills on you. You test them in traffic. You test them when you're in an important but not life-threatening conversation with a loved one. Then you start deploying them when you're in the middle of a code. You write about this thing called the discipline of the suboptimal. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wait a second, how does this fit in with being effective and excellent and having access to your knowledge under pressure? I mean, it almost sounds like a slacker's credo, but I'm guessing it's anything but. Before I was in medicine, long before I was in medicine, I was in martial arts and I had the great opportunity to watch people who were really, really high level martial artists, like total experts in martial arts. And what does it look like when people like that perform? It looks like they are not putting much effort into it. It's an economy of movement. 
Sure. It's a, it's a purposeful, beautiful movement. And it's also usually done with joy and creativity and some sort of peace to it. Right. So when you say excellence, like, is this a path to excellence? Yeah, I think it is. But I think it's a path not just to technical excellence, to the ability to like treat patients like easily and quickly and efficiently, but also the way to bring joy and sort of warmth to it again. Because when I look at what the best doctors do, they do that too, right? They go beyond just delivering a drug in the right, right way. They treat the patient, they treat the community, they build their team, and they leave the universe better than they found it at the beginning of their shift. The doctor of the year is never the one who knows the fractional excretion of sodium the best. Apologies to our renal colleagues. Yes. <laughs> well, no, they, they can be doctor of the year. In fact, the nephrologist was doctor of the year at the local hospital a few years ago, but that wasn't why. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's because when they come down to the emergency department or when they're interacting with people, they're joyous. That's fine. I hadn't thought of that before. Every, every one of them. Some of them definitely have some crust on that joy. I'm going to be honest about it. You know, I'm not going to say that every single interaction I ever have with another human being is perfect and full of joy. That, you know, that would be completely lying. But when I think about what excellence is, what the paragon of being an emergency doctor is, I think about sangfua. I think about the ability to be there to help anybody that comes in, no matter what they need, but also the ability to do that with joy and warmth that builds the community and builds the team and leaves every person that interacted with me in that moment better and more capable to perform under the next emergency than when I first started. That's what I want to do. That's why I do all this. And how does that relate to the discipline of suboptimal? Along the way, you're going to fall a bunch of times. You're going to stumble. You're going to be put under pressure and things aren't going to work out how you want them to. Now, it, no matter how well-trained you are, emergencies throw curveballs at you and things aren't going to work the way you want. So what do you do in that moment? What do you do when things don't turn out the way you want them to, right? So generally, some of us get really frustrated. And if we get frustrated, we can start to suffer the second mistake. And geez, I'm, I'm blanking on, I think it's James Clear that talked about this, uh, but I might be wrong about that, where he writes about avoiding the second mistake, right? So you're going to have a problem, then you have this choice of what to do. And your choices are either to deploy packages of skills that allow you to be resilient, regain your footing, move forward, and hopefully move forward stronger than when you started, or you're going to not deploy that package of skills and you're going to you're going to suffer some second mistake that's going to make things worse whether that's an internal mistake in terms of your own like mental or physiological state or an external mistake like one mistake leads to the wrong drug being delivered the next time so what do you do so for me there's this tension inherent in that which is that you want to recognize the severity of what happened you don't want to pretend it doesn't exist but you want to do so in a way that prepares you to take a better step for your next step. And that to me is this idea of suboptimal. So I need something that I can say, and I need something that I can, I can say out loud, honestly, that, that encapsulates all these feelings that I'm having and that allows them to be passed through me like a wave and me to like reset myself. So I trained over and over again to say out loud, well, this is suboptimal. And I picked it because it's just goofy enough in the middle of like a terrible crisis and like people being on fire and things to say, okay, well, this is suboptimal. Like it, it just has enough of that humor to let you reset yourself for the next moment. And it allows that pause and it opens up the space for you to choose your next action. It, it's not that you're okay with it, right? It's not that you accept it. It's not that you love it. It's just that you recognize this is the reality and you meld with that reality and move forward. What does it mean to train your tired moves? 
Man, we're get, getting into some good stuff here. Okay, so, so this is another one that sort of came at the interface of emergency medicine and jiu-jitsu, which is a totally rich, fertile environment for all sorts of fun things. So one day I'm in jiu-jitsu class and I'm, I think I was trying to escape from a side mount and coach was watching me and watching me sort of flail around and struggle and get more and more tired and struggle more. And he, he goes, stop. All right, look, man, you got to be working on your tired moves. So there's some things you can accomplish, but only in the first couple minutes of a match when you're fully rested and you're fully strong. These are your flashy ultra ninja moves. They're not going to work once you have a big load on you. They're not going to work when you're really exhausted. What functions in that case are your tired moves, things that work no matter how stressed out you are, no matter how broken things are around you. Those are your core basic principles. You got to train those. You got to be good with those before you even think about these sort of ninja fancy moves. And to me, there's a direct parallel here to emergency medicine, right? So tired moves are what works when we're eight hours into the shift, we're out of coffee, our scrubs are bloodied, and the next two trauma patients roll in together. What do we do right then when we're already sort of at the edge of the Yerkes-Dodson law, when we're starting to feel this overwhelm and this frazzle? What works there for us? And a really great simple example is airway management. Okay, so what's a fancy tool that we can use? Well, we can use a fiber optic bronchoscope to perform an awake nasotracheal intubation. That's a little bit complicated. It's definitely a challenge. What's a really basic, basic tired move? We can do good bag mask ventilations. Like what really helps us get air into the person when nothing else is working? And I think that as a general principle in terms of how we respond to emergencies, if we believe that pressure will happen, we believe that we can't control everything, then we must know we're going to be in these situations. We're going to be in these ultra hard, ultra rocky places, and we're going to have to train for them. And in some sense, that links back to the idea of graduated pressure, right? Because we're training in a way that allows us to function in these circumstances. So tired moves are what will work then when everything else is shot. So you're at the end of your workday, and we'll use the emergency department as our example. You're super tired. It's like five minutes before the time when you stop picking up patients. And it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, you, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you've got no serotonin left in your brain, and your next and last patient is a threefer, a family of three with fever and cough and rash and all this. And you're like, oh my gosh, I do not have the mental fortitude to face this. And I think that, you know, like, okay, so there's these physical tired moves, like, oh, I'm going to fall back to my jujitsu technique or my manual bag valve mass ventilation. But when you're fresh and you're starting your day at work, it's almost like you've got this angelic halo, you know, you just, you're so engaged and you just, you're, and you're patient, you know, you're patient with people, you're, you're able to listen and receive. And at the end of that time, it's just, oh my God, I need to be expedient. I need this to be expedited. And, you know, and I, I hate to say it. I mean, and those of you listening, you've been to the emergency department. This is the reality of somebody who's at the end of their day is they are tired and they just want to get this done. So what's your tired move in that situation? You're depleted, but you still need to, you know, it's not that these people need to be taken care of any less than the people in the beginning of your day. Absolutely, man. And I'm going to pick one small fight with you right at the beginning, which is that you said that you don't have enough mental fortitude to get it done. You feel like you don't. Actually, right. But 
I think that's the wrong way to look at it because it's not about the strength of your mind. And if only you were stronger, you could somehow power through this, right? Instead, it's recognizing that all of us have some mental limit. We have reserves. We have the ability to perform at certain levels at different points. And so first off is just recognizing, hey, I'm not at my ultimate best right now. And the better you are at recognizing that, the better you can deploy effective tools to sort of address that and and buttress you and support yourself up, right? So, But if you view it as a personal failing, like, Mm -hmm. man, I don't have the mental fortitude for this, you're going to be a lot more resistant to applying those other techniques in order to help you out. You've just reframed your fatigue from Mm -hmm. like, I am not enough to, I am enough. I just feel tired. Yeah, man, I'm not a robot. I'm a human. And I'm never going to like, well, as far as I know, I'm never going to become a robot, right? Like uh, allowing for future events to be uncertain. But as far as I know, I will remain a human as long as I am. And what that means is that I'm subject to the same laws of physiology as everybody else in the universe. If you starve me of sugar, I make worse decisions. If you make me fatigued or hot or cold or uncomfortable, I make worse decisions. And I'm an expert at what I do. But that still applies to me because I'm also a human. And if you read like the really famous judges lunch study, right? Have you ever heard of this? Basically, they looked at Israeli judges and their ability, the sort of their probability of granting parole to people and charted it over the course of the day. And essentially, right after they eat, they have some percentage. And as they get farther and farther away before their next meal break, the percentage of parole drops precipitously, even controlling for like all other factors. Right. And there's same things about, I believe there's a similar study about uh, errors in colonoscopy rates, or I forget if it's endoscopy or colonoscopy, but whatever it is, the point is none of us, even top level judges, even top level ER doctors, we're not immune to physiology. And to think that we are, or to think that it's a personal failing if we respond to physiology, it just really, that sets us up for failure. And it's a really unnecessary failure because by a simple act of reframing, we can really set ourselves up more for success which is to say, okay, well, how do I design a system that supports me over the course of my shift? How do I intake calories and water and go to the bathroom and do whatever it takes? And that doesn't fix everything because as any ER doctor will tell you, all the best plans or rather no plan survives contact with the enemy, right? So you can design whatever system you want and it'll break when things start going south. But as a first line, I will say, I recognize I am not in my ideal state right now. Okay, so then I'll ask, well, what things do I really need to do right now? And what things are great if I do right now? So I might ask myself, okay, can I start these patients or should I attempt to make a full diagnosis and treatment of them? And so one option might be, hey, look, I'm going to start this and save it for the next doctor coming on because I recognize I'm not thinking as creatively as I would be otherwise. Now there's shades of that, right? You can, you can, completely give it to the next person. You can start the case. But one thing I almost always do is I try to be a little more conservative towards the end of my shift because I try to adjust for the fact that my creative thinking and my pattern matching skills might not be as good as they are at the beginning. I'm thinking back to a patient I saw a couple of years ago. He was extremely complex. He was the first patient I saw that day. And uh, there was no, nobody else was in the emergency department. This was a crazy day. It was just, just him. He had myopericarditis, a pericardial effusion. I need to do this and that. It was the maximal level of my knowledge and skill application and procedural application. And I said to him at the end of this, as he's you know getting rolled up, I said, I got to tell you, man, I am so glad that you came in as my first patient because there's no way I would have figured this out if you were at the end of the day. 
it took all of my mental processing and I had to sit and think for like, you know, a long time to suss out what was happening. And boy, acknowledging that you don't have that at the end of the day, because you have these other pressures too. It's not just that you're fatigued, you have time pressures, you kind of want to get out of there. And it's just, there's, there's a lot to it. I love that part of the tired move is just acknowledging that you've got less in the tank. In some ways it's less, and in some ways it's just different. Right, you're just tuned differently. Like at the end of a, and I'm not a musician, so I'm going to go out on a limb here because it's my understanding of this. But if you look at the way a violin is tuned at the beginning and at the end of a performance, it's going to end up being tuned slightly differently. It's not a better or worse violin necessarily, but it's been in a different position. Its its humidity is different. The heat on the instrument is different. Everything is going to change, and the tuning of that's going to change somewhat slightly. So we can't be mad about that. We just have to recognize that that's reality and sort of adjust accordingly. And I think we get in trouble when we either pretend it's not happening, we ignore it, or we are just sort of blind to it more than anything, right? And we all know those, what is it, the the Snickers commercial where it's like, you don't feel like yourself when you're hungry. And you know they substitute like a nice old grandma with like Mr. T yelling at you. <laughs> Like if we're not aware of that, then we run into real trouble. If we are aware of it, we can at least begin to address it. And it, which is, in some sense, what we're doing is we're labeling fatigue as a cognitive bias. We're we're at least putting it in the same broad category as cognitive biases, which are things that are easy to be blind to, but that make big differences in our ability to perform our job. As we wrap this up, I'm going to turn the tables of your own podcast on you because I know yeah, that yeah, you yeah. ask your guests what's a challenge for the audience, right? Until the next time, until the next episode, something to think about, to put into action. So what is your challenge for the stimulus audience? I love it. So my challenge is to become a student of yourself, right? To become a student of how you perform and function under pressure. What I mean by that is that every person responds to pressure and responds to um, stress differently. And there's all sorts of things I can tell you about how I do it and how experts do it, but ultimately it's going to be on you to figure this out for yourself. So my challenge is to start experimenting, to start writing down ideas, testing hypotheses, picking small areas of stress and pressure, again, applying that graduated pressure idea, and start running your own experiments on yourself. Keep track of what happens. Keep a lab notebook on yourself. You know, like go back to go back to high school, you know, physics and keep a lab notebook on yourself. <laughs> Get in there and start experimenting and figure out what works. And then when you find something, come back and teach me because I want to learn it. And that is it for today's episode. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, our occasional, irregular, and non-spammy newsletter, Shazam. If you are interested in our IMALS fundraiser that's still going on, there's a link to it in the show notes as well, and we will match contributions up to $5,000. You can learn more by clicking the link. You can subscribe to Stimulus and pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.